0: roberson this is the mountain and prairie podcast where i introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are shaping the future of the american west i meet most of these people through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains my guests include ranchers writers entrepreneurs conservationists athletes artists adventurers pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell my guest today is john dunaway John is a Texas-based merchant mariner who spends six months each year traveling the world as the captain of large cargo ships. Whether cruising the calm, warm waters of Central America or avoiding Somali pirates off the coast of Africa, John's goal is the same, deliver the cargo efficiently while ensuring the safety of his crew. Quite the responsibility for a 32-year-old. When not at sea, John is an avid bird hunter, surfer, and all-around adventurer who uses his downtime to explore everywhere from Jackson Hole to Canyonlands to Antelope Island with his wife and young daughter. Thanks to a talent for photography and writing, John has gained a huge following on Instagram, where he documents his exploits on his account, Abstract Conformity. So you might be asking, what does a ship captain have to do with mountains and or prairies? Although John may spend most of his time on the high seas far away from the American West, you'll notice that his optimistic perspective, focused sense of purpose, and thirst for adventure parallel the attitudes and outlooks of many of my previous podcast guests. Also, like other guests, he's well-read, a deep thinker, and has a genuine conservation ethic thanks to his connection to the natural world. Although the object of our affections may be different, our underlying values and priorities are surprisingly similar. So, after almost a year of recording this podcast, I was excited to switch it up a little with this in-depth conversation with John about a subject that was fairly new to me. We start by covering the basics of the job, how one becomes a ship captain, particulars on the size of these ships, and details of day-to-day life on a 90-day ocean voyage. Then we dig deeper into some of his thoughts on leadership, his rituals and superstitions, and how he manages the pressure that comes along with being responsible for a massive ship, his crew, and millions and millions of dollars of cargo. He also tells a few crazy stories from Africa and India, and he shares some insights from his recent trips around the American West. As usual, we discuss favorite books, films, and his thoughts on conservation. I found this to be a fascinating conversation, and I'd love to hear what you think. If you have a moment, please shoot me an email and let me know your thoughts. All my contact info is on the webpage. As always, thanks for taking the time to listen. Hope you enjoy. When you meet somebody for the first time and they ask you, what do you do? How do you answer that question?
1: Yeah, so this one's always funny. I always start off, and I'll say, I'm in the Merchant Marine. And usually I get a blank stare. It, it Two two aspects. I either get a blank stare and just kind of blink their eyes or they thank me for the service. You know, they hit a Marine. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> and then I and then I have to go into it. I'm like, I'm captain of a cargo ship. And I'm like, oh. So you're like, you like go around the world I'm like yeah i work on those big ships that coming out of the port and bring you all your stuff so it's never easy i mean still i live in houston which is you know by volume we're moving the largest amount of ships in the country and people are still baffled They're like, what exactly do you do like, yeah so the easiest way to tell people is i'm captain of a cargo ship
0: got it and so for people who aren't really familiar with that and it's funny you say that that people even right there in your area aren't and I guess it's because they they come into the port and then you're you're out of sight because you're out in the middle of the ocean for for you know weeks and weeks on end. Um, can you give a uh, give us a description of the type of ships that you that you captain because it's and it maybe you know how long they are, how much weight they carry, you know all that kind of stuff just so people who aren't really familiar with boats can get an idea of the scale we're talking about here
1: yeah, sure. So I work on a ship, uh, we call them heavy lift, and that has to do with the fact that the cranes that we have on board, so we have three cranes, and two of them are capable of lifting 450 metric tons apiece, and we can link them together and do 900 tons. And so to give reference, uh, a full locomotive with its bogies, its the wheels and everything, is about 120 tons. So wow. if we wanted to, we could pick up four locomotives with one crane at one time. Wow. And so, and,
0: how long are these boats in general?
1: Um, so, this one happens to be 172 meters, so it puts her right about 564 feet. Uh, she's just shy of 20,000 deadweight tons, which, so she, if she were to go in the water, it's how much water, she's going to push out of the way, or we can put on board.
0: That's um, that's hard to get my, my head around, how big that is.
1: <laughs> so... It, yeah, I mean, a football field is a hundred meters, so we're almost two football fields long.
0: Got it, got it. And so, just to kind of finish up, going through these basics, when you go out on a voyage—is that the right term, voyage?
1: Yes, that's what I'll call it.
0: When you go out on a voyage, how how long are you out there? Like, like, what's the average the average trip for
1: you? So that's the crazy thing with the industry. There's so many facets of it. I mean, you can work in the merchant marine, you could be in a channel and. I work, we call it deep sea, and my ships, they actually tramp. So it means that they never have a set schedule. I mean, we literally book cargo. So I could do a voyage going from Houston to to New Orleans, and then it could go from New Orleans all the way to like the Middle East. So my contract is 90 days, and then plus or minus. So, for example, I try to work 90 days on and then take 90 days off. Yep my last hitch happened to be 140 days when I signed off. Wow. Yeah. And right now I'm, I'm just shy of 90 days of vacation.
0: And so when that, when that trip was 140 days, was that, was it planned to be that long or was it, it just got stretched out over time or, or how did it end up being that long?
1: Yeah. So again, it goes to the nature of these vessels that I work on. We don't have a set schedule. So like I flew to Tacoma, Washington and I get there and have no idea what, what our next voyage is. And I get on board and the other captain fills me and he's like, oh, you're going to Canada and you're going to load some yachts. And then these are the, the ports that they think. So we went down the West Coast. You know, we did uh, Ensenada, Mexico, Costa Rica, through the Panama Canal. And you don't know because we thought, oh, we get the Panama Canal, maybe a day. And then we go through. It ended up being like seven days later. Then we transited. So there's all kinds of lead time. And then we got to the, the port of discharge fort everglades florida and then there were some other hang-ups and then when they got the next voyage you know we didn't know what was going to happen after the yacht so we went offshore we drifted and the company won a bid for some cargo and then we went to the middle east and we got over there and then that came down to a matter of the other captain and i had come to an agreement i was like hey i'll work christmas this year you know because and you have christmas next year so forth and and so it just wasn't in a good place when we were coming back we were going to be going through the Suez Canal on our way home in Egypt like January 2nd. And I was like, well, there's no point. Now I'm only like 17 days from the U.S. I'll just stay on. You know, it's easier to do that, take it off. And and I wanted to do it personally. Sometimes some voyages are harder than others. It's just depending on the port rotations, what's going on. This voyage had a great crew. Everything was going so smooth. Honestly, another 17 days wasn't affecting my mindset and my wife was like hey everything's good at the house just keep on rolling with it bring her home and then just fly home from the states
0: that's really really interesting (laughs) how how that works um so how did you become a ship captain i know that's just the most basic question um and i know a little bit about your background from from reading but you know how, how did this how did this even come about i mean how do you how does one go from not really you know knowing much about boats to being the captain
1: so out of high school, I decided to go to Kings Point, which is a U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. Most people don't know. It's one of the five federal academies we have, just like Annapolis and West Point and all that. And from there is a four-year program. You know, I went through. I spent a year at sea while I was uh, in school. Literally I spent three years on the campus and a year at sea. And I got a license. And you hear people, you know, not to detract from anybody, but a lot of people are like, oh, I'm a captain. They're like, man, that's outstanding, whatever But there's different levels of it, right? I mean, you can have people that are as low as, like, 100-ton master. They may be a fishing boat. And when I come out of school, I got a what they call an unlimited tonnage. So that means that I can be captain of – or at the time, it was just a third mate. So, But the license is that I can work on a vessel of any tonnage in the world, so up to the largest. And through that, you have to accrue 365 days in each position. So you start as a third mate and then a second mate and then a chief mate and through the process of that racking up sea time and taking tests through the US Coast Guard they accredit you give you the next license and then hope that there's a position open you know typically most people most officers work 6 months out of the year so it takes you 2 years to go through every rank got it and that's on I mean a fast track
0: and so when you head out to to sea when you get everything loaded up, you head out, What do, and, and you're, you know, whatever, 100 miles offshore, and you're, you're rolling. What, what does a typical day look like? I mean, what, what do you – I know that as captain, you're overseeing everything, but like, what does your day look like, and what does a day look like for your, your crew members?
1: Yeah, so ship's got three departments. We have the deck department that does all the navigation, ballast, cargo. You've got an engine department that does all the maintenance and then a steward department that does all the sanitary inside the the house, as we call it, where we live, and all the cooking, cleaning. So each department has their own schedule. But For most of us, I mean, I'm on the deck side. Um, The deck officers, they have watches, and they will stand watches four hours on, eight hours off, and then they work about four hours of overtime in there. So during – so my day, let's say as a captain, I'll get up at 6 – Got my own little morning routine. I like to do, go to the bridge, check on what's going on through the evening. Make sure nothing's changed. Look at the weather, um, anything that may need to be brought to my attention right away. Otherwise, it's just kind of a standard operating procedure. Uh, do that. Go grab breakfast. You know, talk to everybody, see what's going on for that day. If any new changes come with the engine, do a deck walk. And in that process, you know, the engine department's turned two after breakfast. They've got their Regular maintenance, and they all turn to knock out that. And the deck department, it's just a constant battle. I mean, steel and salt water do not like each other. So you can imagine everything. There's just work around the clock, whether it's chipping, painting, greasing, tearing apart stuff for maintenance or prepping for the next port. So it's really dynamic. It's always changing. But for the most part, you've got watches. There's somebody always on watch in the engine room and the bridge navigating and then once daylight comes breakfast time they work you know up till dinner
0: got it and so you mentioned you have a, a morning routine i'm always interested in how how people start their day and i would imagine there's a lot of or, or there there could be a lot of stress if you let it get to you in in the position you're in just because sure. there's, there's so much on the line so <laughs> if you don't mind i'd love to hear kind of what your are what your morning routine is and how you keep your head straight when you've got that much responsibility for 90 days straight.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I'm a terrible creature of habit. Uh, I love like that book power of habit. Oh but, yeah. yeah I, so I'll wake up at six. Uh, I get up, I walk out. So I've got a day room as we'd call it. It's where like my desk is my couch and all that kind of stuff. And then I've got a cabin. It's back behind that with a bed dresser and in my shower. So I'll wake up at six. I come out of there, go into my day room. I walk straight over to the coffee machine. I hit the grinder and I flip the switch on my, um, my water kettle, light that off. I walk over, I open my forward blinds, which look out, you know, up to the bow. Yep. I walk over to the starboard side, open those blinds, look out the starboard side. I do, then every week I'll increase until I start like at 20 push-ups. And when I get to to 35 i'll change maybe do declines or restricted push-ups or something different but i open the blinds i do push-ups then i walk in i make my bed i take a shower i come back out into the day room i shut the door to my cabin because to me it's like that's where i sleep and that's closed and that's finished that's my private little quarters and then i brew my coffee and i got a little Aeropress. press <laughs> you know i oh those I things are back. awesome yeah and you can take them everywhere it's
0: yeah so i've had those things on mountain climbing trips on like uh, in in central america like like you can take them anywhere and they make the best coffee
1: <laughs> yeah it's outstanding <laughs> and I, I early on when i first read about it that's what i saw is uh some barista had articles like i even take it on a plane on international flights It's like sold i'm getting one of those <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you you drink the coffee and then then what's next
1: Yeah, I drink my coffee and I sit in, I've got a little chair next to my desk. I sit in there and listen to a podcast or an audio book and then I sit over, then I look at the weather. It's like my mind is clear, you know, everything's from whatever I may have been held on to from the night before, done a little knowledge for the day and then I move to my desk. I look at the weather and then I walk over and I open the door to my day room, which kind of like opens my office to everybody. Yeah. That's about seven o'clock, you know. If anybody needs me, they can always bang on the door. But when I open the door at seven, I'm like, I've gone through my routine. I've got my little physical exertion. I'm showered. I feel refreshed. I've listened to something new for the day. Then I've checked the weather, and that lets me know do I need to make any adjustments. And then from there, I go up to the bridge, see the bridge crew, and that's when I start, you know, looking through the logs. What has happened with the weather last night? Talk to the guys. Is anything coming up? Uh, anything maybe the chief mate's going to be changing with maintenance? And then from there, we just keep rolling and go on to breakfast, and the day goes. Have
0: you always had that routine, or is that something that you've developed over the, over the, the years you've been doing that? How long have you been doing this, 13, 14 years now?
1: Uh, I've had a license for 10 years. Okay. And so if you counted when I went to Kings Point, it's been 14 years. But Got it. Yeah, 10 years actively sailing.
0: So is, has this routine been in, some version of this routine been in place the whole time or is it, have you kind of perfected it over the, over the years?
1: I've definitely perfected it. I didn't pick up on a good routine until I was, oh, a second mate. I had had like four or five years in the industry. Yep. And, and once I did it, you know, it was just different books I was reading. I got into like, you know, the four hour work week and just efficiency of operations in general. Yep. And I found something for myself, and I needed it because, as an officer, third mate, second mate, chief mate, you stand a navigation watch, right? So you work four hours, and then you're off eight, and so your watch may be in the middle of the night, and then the next one's during the day. And I found a routine that I needed, and it came a lot from a captain I had. That one time, was like, he came up one morning, i never forget, and the radar, or excuse me, the radio on the port side, the volume was all the way down. He's like, "Can you hear what's going on over there?" We're in the middle of the ocean. What? What are you talking about? He's like, that. you can come over there and check that. He goes, make a habit. Find yourself a routine that you go around and you check every piece of equipment on the bridge. Whatever it is, it's systematic. So it doesn't take any effort. You'll just do that. And so from there forward, I developed a routine. And when I stood a navigation watch, I had that same routine. I came up in the back room, like the chart table room. I would always grind my coffee, light up the kettle, come out. I would adjust the radios, adjust the radars, I would look at the chart table, plot out where we we're gonna be for the next four hours with my watch, talk to the other officer. I was relieving, you know, he'd go on his way. It's my watch. I'd let the A B know, hey, I'm going in the back. I'd brew coffee. I'd come in, tell him, hey, I'm going out on the wing. I had a timer for ten minutes. And I start I would meditate. And and it wasn't like a entrance kind of thing. I would just stand out on the wing, close my eyes, and listen to all the sounds. I could listen to the hull. I could yep. hear the water going down. Or, and and again, and then that allowed me to clear my mind. And then from there forward, I felt that I could just tackle whatever was coming for that day.
0: Yeah, that makes sense, and it, it seems to line up with um, with a lot of other people who are in you know high stress jobs that require you know high level of performance. Uh, you mentioned the four hour work week, and I love Tim Ferriss's podcast. I'm sure you probably listen to oh. that as well. Yeah. And I'd say 90% of the people he has on there, they all have a very, very, very dialed in morning routine. And also a huge percentage of them do some sort of meditation practice and not some kind of silly, you know, crazy kind of hippie stuff, but just some sort, like you said, you know, just just kind of focusing on the sounds or focusing on your breath. And it really seems to make a difference um, to get that day started. Um, One one other question I had about the rituals. I know that just in in reading about – ships and the history of, of ships in the sea that 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 i guess uh that that area of of history has a lot of superstition and, and rituals and kind of a lot of ship captains i, I know have kind of weird superstitions do you have any kind of kind of strange superstitions that you do say before taking off and if not or in addition to that what's the weirdest superstition you've ever seen from from people you've worked with
1: I see. I don't have one for for leaving port, you know, going to sea. But I do get on people for whistling on the bridge. Right? It's an old added whistling up a storm.
0: Ah, yeah, I've heard
1: that, but I didn't
0: know that was that it it was related to that.
1: Yeah, they always say only bosuns, which are they're an unlicensed crew member, and they run the deck department for the unlicensed, and they had a whistle, and they would. You know, literally like a little piped whistle. They would whistle people to and from different tasks. And they would said, "Only, only bosuns whistle on, on a ship." So if you're whistling on the bridge, you're whistling up a storm. I always find that to be bad luck. Like, Don't be whistling up here.
0: <laughs> Have you ever seen any just bizarre rituals that, that say some a crew member or somebody you've worked with over the years has, has had? Uh,
1: I can't say so. That's probably good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I might, mean, I've,
0: you don't want to be they, getting on a boat in ninety days to some weirdo who's like, you know, burning yeah. animal pelts or something.
1: <laughs> yeah, I've heard of some people um, bananas are supposedly bad luck. Like, don't bring bananas on board. But I find that that comes from a lot of guys, at least who I've heard, because I've had different crew members that worked on offshore fishing boats, and uh-huh. they say a lot of those captains have like really quirky ab- habits like that. You can't bring bananas on board. And all right. That's so so I, I don't know where that stems from. I've heard that it's an old you know, old folklore, but I personally I don't know where that one is.
0: So you mentioned the the crews. When you get on one of these boats to go, is it a, first of all, is it a different crew every time? And then also, is it a different boat every time? And if so, how do you how do you adjust for that? I mean it's it's kind of two completely different subjects, but um, are those two things different every time you get on?
1: So for the most part, the unlicensed, so we have, right. We have officers that are like, well, officers in the military. Mm-hmm. And then we have what we call unlicensed, which are the enlisted crew. You would per se. Yep. They, because of the nature of the unions that they work through, they're pretty much a revolving door. So very infrequently. We, will you see the same faces? The officers, You try to keep as many of them as you can consistent, but it's so dynamic. I typically expect out of a 19 person crew for what our ship has to see maybe five to seven of the same people every trip.
0: Got it. And so what have you learned over the years as far as leading these people when you're having to get a whole new or majority new team every time you go out, what, are there any takeaways or any lessons you've been able to kind of distill down about the, the secret to, to being a good leader and being able to lead all these people consistently, um, you know, different crews over different trips?
1: Yeah, the, the first thing I do is I pull a meeting together and have everybody come on, come into the lounge. First of all, I want to approach them. I want them to see me as a person, see my face and know that I'm not just a figure that lives up, you know, on the top deck they never can come to so I'll pull them together approach everybody and and let them know right off the bat that hey this is all we have this is this is our ship this, we these are your shipmates and when we leave this dock like, there's nobody that's gonna you're gonna ring up on the phone that's gonna run out and help you out it's gonna be us so you better know that you've all got to pull your weight and expect that the person next to you is gonna pull their weight and know that I'm here to take care of you in, in every asset that I can that's that the, in my ability. And I want to always know that I'm approachable. At, it doesn't matter what time of the day it is. If you need me, just come up there and bang on them. And so I was reading a book called Knife Fights several years ago. It's by a lieutenant colonel in the army. And he'd been in Iraq and he came back and he was actually helping the Pentagon come up with a war plan for fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan that they were still using Vietnam era stuff. Yep. But he had, he brought up these points, and he called it uh, let's see, it PTFC. So it was, you got to give them purpose. You've got to show them that they can trust you. You've got to give them focus on whatever the project's going to be, and in turn, you want to breed camaraderie. And if you bring forth the first three, you kind of have the other one. And that's what I, you know, without telling them, those are the elements. I want to show them that, hey, this is the voyage. This is, you know, you can always come see me. Any information that I have, I am not going to hold it from you. Because on a ship, like, ships are really bad about, some captains like to hold on knowledge and not tell everybody. And so, like, scuttlebutt, you'll go down, and they always joke that the cook always knows the most, because you go into the galley, and you're like, so where are we going? Now, they always have the most information somehow. Yeah, Because <laughs> everybody runs to them. And so I always make sure to let them know that, hey, I'm going to fill you in, and I have a meeting about every two weeks. And if we have any new news, always bring that forward. That's the biggest one. Is that is that that out of the
0: ordinary? Your is your your approach there? Because I, I, or maybe it's an age thing since you're on the younger end. But I, I just had this image in my head of a lot of of captains kind of bossing everybody around and trying to be in charge. You know, be, be the the more of a dictator than than the type of leadership you're talking about. So is is, are most people your age more along the lines that that you're describing, and and or or am I just making that up in my head from watching too many movies?
1: No, I don't feel that a lot of people are doing that I, in both age groups. I feel that the the older group lived from a very dictatorship. You know, the captain is in charge whatever the captain says goes and i don't want to detract that from the position at all but i would like to be approachable you know i worked as a chief mate for years and and i'm big on the military you know my roommate in college became a navy seal and i respect those people so much and you see how these people work together in very dynamic and very stressful situations and if you don't trust the person next to you i mean where are you going you're going to follow somebody blindly only to a certain point. They only follow people blindly because they truly trust them. And the person that i harp back on is Shackleton, you know, Ernest Shackleton went down to Antarctica on several expeditions, And when they got stuck in the ice, he didn't lose a single person. Yep. And just, he was approachable. It's like, you never ask people to do something that either a, you haven't done yourself or you wouldn't do. And again, I tell people, respect the position, but you don't have to respect me as a person. I hope hope that along the way, I earn that respect. But respect the position again that, hey, I am the captain at the end of the day, and you're going to have to listen to this. But know that we are still a team. Like, this is a unit. And every element, we're all an asset. And so even from the lowest guy, if you strip that away from them, that's what you're going to get out of them. They're like, Oh well then I'm just dead weight. I'll just drag myself through this. Yeah. So for me it's just come from seeing smaller operating units that like the military. You know, you can take a small group of guys in different ranks and they're still all brothers. You know, you've got to be there for each other.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And that, that Shackleton book, I've I've read one of those uh, those about him, the I think it's called Endurance. It's the old yes. one. And um it's just a great book all the way around. But I think for leadership lessons there's there's none better that's just an amazing story that he didn't he didn't lose anybody
1: yeah absolutely incredible the one part
0: in that book that that i always thought was amazing or 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 super interesting was there was one guy i think it was the photographer for the expedition and he was kind of a sad sack and had a terrible attitude and i remember that the captain took him and made him sleep in the tent with him because he wanted to isolate him from the rest of the crew because he didn't want that bad attitude spreading he knew if if that bad attitude spread, it would be just like cancer on everybody else and I thought I never thought about that, but how he kind of became the buffer between that guy and the <laughs> and the rest of the crew to to keep that terrible um, that terrible vibe from from getting in everybody. I thought that was pretty interesting
1: yeah definitely
0: um so what are there any misconceptions that common misconceptions about being a ship captain, either the, the, the way the work goes or, you know, when people are talking to you you mentioned that, that people will say that, yeah, I, I'm really good on boats. And they're talking about a 50 foot boat, whereas you're talking about two football fields worth of boat. Are there any kind of common misconceptions you get a lot um, related to being a captain? Uh
1: Yeah, well, first of all, they're like, wait a minute. You're only 32 years old? How does that work? You know. Yeah, yeah. I even thought that, actually. <laughs> yeah, and I guess you see pictures, and you expect that you've got to be old and have a big beard and, and all this stuff. And at times definitely have changed. So, that's definitely one. You, you don't have to be old. More often than not, probably 95% of them are much older. Um, the other thing about chips, I would say, it's and people think that they're much more responsive than they are. You know, again, it goes back to, oh, yeah, you know, I've worked on a boat. And not to track because people who work on small boats are incredible ship handlers. And – but they think, oh, yeah, you know, you give it a little more power. You just back it in. And it does this. But when you're dealing with 20,000 up to 200,000 deadweight tons, they're affected by the elements so much more. And our power to weight ratio is not there like an outboard or even – big diesel engines. So that's the biggest one. We are very slow to respond. The basics of, of boats and their nature are going to gonna act the same. But everything is very, very slow, and it takes a lot more force to counteract it.
0: Yeah, it's again, I, I can kind of get that in my head. I understand what you're saying, but I really can't understand it because of the amount of just how big these things are. Yeah, I think I know enough to know that I I really can't understand it unless I got in there and felt it myself. It's pretty pretty amazing to think about. Um, So this is kind of a kind of a cheesy question, but I am interested. What is the most dangerous area that you have visited? Because I always think about that movie Captain Phillips, where the 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 African um, pirates get on. Yeah, Somalian pirates get on board. how did uh, do you go through any areas where you're kind of on guard the whole time?
1: Yeah, yeah, we do. I've been over there uh, several times already, and so early on, right? I guess it was before that movie came out. They would, when they were really hot and hostile, it was definitely edgy. You know, you you would see them. I've been probed by them, you know, out to a hundred yards, and at the time we had a security team on board asking the captain for a green light because. There were six boats, you know, they're piled with six to eight guys. They could see the weapons and they were just standing off just far enough. Like they knew, you know, like if we come closer, we may get shot, but let's figure out, is this, does this ship have a security team? So I've seen that, you know, I, I heard another ship requesting EU coalition, you know, EU ships and and the coalition militaries that were out there at the time requesting assistance because they were being attacked, you know, and, helicopters get launched, seeing this cruiser off of our starboard side. Here comes the EU helicopter, and they're talking to the ship. And these guys are screaming. They're like, they're coming on board. They're coming on board. Like, Man, that's those guys right there. You know, They're a half mile away. I can see them with my naked eye. Wow. They're getting boarded. Uh, having a security team on board is obviously very reassuring. Can the like, security like,
0: team this may be a dumb question, but can they carry weapons? Cause I know, or at least I read somewhere that you guys cannot carry weapons. Is that right?
1: That's correct. So we cannot, but the security teams that we hire can carry weapons. You know, they, they go through all the stages Having certain countries. You can't bring them in. You've got to dispose of them. You've got to check them in with, you know, us customs. They've got rules of engagement. Now they have through their own companies for being vetted. You, know, you can't just shoot people for the sake of it. Cause you're, Hostile, and you're on the open seas. Um,
0: yeah, that's so, uh, that's pretty intense. I mean, that's it, I mean, that's that's really intense.
1: Yeah. So you know, there's so many different places around the world. You've got that where then they were really bad. Now, meh, they're not so much. I mean, the, the coalition ships have all been so consistent in that region. They've really knocked them down. They're not doing much of anything. We just went through there. And didn't see a single thing. We didn't get a single message for the entire month we were in the region. But then, you know, we went up through the straits of Hormuz, and because we're a U.S. ship, you know, you go right by Iran, which is the different threat. We had three gunboats, and then they carry these massive 50 cal's on the bow, and they're running up these little speedboats, and they're like 30 yards off, you know, running alongside you. Like, okay, what are they going to do? Are they going to come alongside? You know, we've got a whole letterhead printed up from the U.S. Navy. Like, these are the numbers you have to call. If they ask to board, please you know, ask them not to. If they do choose you, don't fight back. And so you have that. And then you go over to, like, say, Indonesia, where we got robbed at Anchor. You know, these guys climbed on in the middle of the night. They just wanted to steal line. They're not that bad. We were in Diwala, Cameroon, now over in West Africa, Central West Africa. You know, again— razor wire up and people are climbing on board and they're stealing everything from brass off the fire hoses to they actually stole the outboard motor on our rescue boat <laughs> wow
0: it must be pretty strong and nimble to be able to <laughs> maneuver that oh. thing off
1: yeah it was incredible i could i mean i was cabin at the time and so i was asleep and got the phone calls like we've just been robbed I was like you've got to be kidding how we had razor wire up and it was definitely an inside job we had to move some guys on deck to do some deck work in the middle of the night because the rain came in. We were moving grain at the time. And when they went forward, there was a local that was standing back by some of the gates. We have the house, like, gated off with razor wire and everything. He must have noticed that we had all left, at least the people that were on watch in the middle of the night. This is like at 2.30 in the morning. And must have called with some of his friends on the cell phone. And they paddled up in a little dugout canoe, literally used a pole with a hook. And just ripped on that razor wire until they tore it down, and then they are incredibly nimble. I mean, they shimmied up a tiny little pole. It's like, oh, it's like the size of like a fence post. Yeah, you know, like a metal fence post. Shimmied up, climbed over, walked up to the next deck, got this little 25 horsepower motor, managed to carry it down a flight of stairs on his own. And one of our guys was walking back and calls the other guy on the radio, he was like, "Are hey, there supposed to be any African guys back there? Because <laughs> you know we're locked down." And he goes no why we're getting robbed and the guy literally threw the motor in the river jumped over the rail into the river And by the time they ran over there the guy they were just climbing in this canoe just paddling off into the darkness <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, that's
0: uh you know it, it get yeah I, I wouldn't want my stuff to get stolen but if somebody's willing to put in that much damn work i'm almost like man you Ooh. earned it
1: <laughs> yeah right but uh, that's the funny thing you're like now neither of us got the motor. Oh yeah, I mean, <laughs> at least if you were going to take it, take it. But goodness, now it's just gone. Nobody yeah. got. It.
0: <laughs> um, uh, so between that and the the Somali pirates and all that kind of stuff, it sounds like you've got a ridiculous number of crazy stories. Is there is there one story that sticks out in your head as just kind of the craziest thing you've ever seen in all of your trips? Uh
1: Yes. Yeah, so when I was a cadet, we went over to. Mumbai which is all they you know it was old Bombay India yeah and, and I was on a container ship then we docked in new Bombay, which is across the bay. So we docked and I had a camera at the time I was just tinkering was was shooting photos so I get off and I'm gonna ride this little ferry across the bay and as I'm walking over there, there are these three like little military guys you know and they walk up and they want to look in my bag and I'm maybe let's see this was about like 20 at the time kind of naive I'm like yeah of course you can't you know and they looked in the first thing they do is saw that camera and they snatched that out i was like and so again now i'm 20 and i'm all pumped up you know, oh yeah you want to like, battle yeah exactly I was like i don't think so you're not taking that start to get in this like you know getting in people's face and the guy takes his uh his car band and just put it in my chest I was like you get on the boat you get on the boat right now it's like i don't think so like you're not going to shoot me <laughs> yeah, and in hindsight i'm like it's probably a terrible idea but i made it out and i just wrestled back and forth I and mean, he just kept putting that the muzzle of that gun you know in my chest like get on the boat you know go to town or get on the ship you cannot have this like yeah bs it's like i'm gonna go back to that ship and get the captain It's like i'm gonna get people involved give me my camera back and they walked in this little building and i walked in there and, and then i kind of realized you know there's more of them and they're looking at me like who's this crazy white guy <laughs> <laughs> that is taking the gun to his chest for this camera. I was like, there is no way I'm leaving without that camera. And they just started chattering each other. And then they gave it back to me. And when I got on the boat. It was like, that was terrible.
0: Idea. <laughs> well, it <laughs> could have gone either way. You could have thought that was terrible. Or you could have thought, yeah, I'm, I'm tough. I'm going to do that again. <laughs> yeah, right.
1: Uh, Man, uh, I, that's yeah, crazy. Could, they could easily just shot me in the chest, kicked me in the dirty river. Nobody would have ever know the difference. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, man. Uh, yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's intense. I've seen, I've seen some gunfights from uh, afar in, in Nicaragua, but I've never, and it was one of the scariest things I've ever seen, but I've never had anybody pull a gun on me. That's yeah, that's a different, different deal. Um, so to back it up a little bit, where did you grow up and, and how did you, you get into this, this line of work? What made you decide to get into this line of work?
1: Yeah, so I was born in Niterói, Brazil, which is just across the bay from Rio. My mom's from down there. My parents were living there at the time. My dad was working offshore. Okay. And then grew up there very briefly. You know, I was like three years old when we came back and would go down there a bunch. But grew up the rest of my life predominantly in Houston since I was five. Yep. And And, oh, go ahead. Yeah, uh, my dad's always been in the industry. I mean, obviously, when I was born, he would have been, hell, When he left high school, instead of going to college, I mean, he worked as a messman. We don't have those anymore. Literally, they would, like, take your order in the galley and give you food and worked his way up on ships and then did ocean-going tugs. He did anchor boats down in, like, Tierra del Fuego and then made his way back into working on harbor tugs and then was working in the port of Houston on ships. So, to me, it was just like, huh. Like, this was just something he did. I mean, you know, most people... I went to school and their parents would come in. They were, they're in a suit and tie. And like, hi, I work in an office or I work at NASA. You know, was like, yeah. my dad's the guy. He always has this funny smell to him. And years later, I'd be like, oh, now I know what it is. It's the smell of diesel. It literally just encompasses everything. I mean, when I get off the ship, I've got a bag and I leave it in the garage because that's my sea bag. Because it doesn't matter how many times you wash it. It's just that smell of heavy fuel oil and diesel. Yeah. But – so, yeah, fast forward, my grandfather flew in World War II, and I thought my whole life was like, oh, yeah, this is a blast. What so my dad does, I like, climb on on up and down ships all the time and climb on tugboats, but I'm going to be a naval aviator. And, and then as I got later in high school, I didn't, like, order that much. It's like, yeah, I can't deal with the military and this many people telling me what to do all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I was at... I came home. It was like the middle of the week and I'm eating dinner just by myself with my mom and she asked me, she's like, what are you going to do for college? And I was a junior at the time. You know, football season had ended. It's like, mm, I don't know. I was like, I'll just go to like a state school. I'll figure something out along the way. And she you ever thought about doing what your dad does? Like, um, no, what's that? What do you, like, how do you think we pay for all this stuff? <laughs> you know, completely naive. Because to me, it was just, it was the most amazing thing ever. I was like, Oh, he just like climbs on ships. He drives these ships around like, yeah, we get to play on tugboats. It's just, I was like, Oh, I can get paid to do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, so that's when the whole chain of events unfolded. I was like, well, of course I want to do that. I play on the water every day. I love being on the water and what better would it be to get paid to drive a ship around and I get to go see the world. You know, he'd tell me stories of going to India and all kinds of crazy stuff. It's like, that's what I want to do.
0: And so, uh, you went to the Merchant Marine Academy, and, and, and then I saw on some of your social media a few weeks back that you actually went back to the Merchant Marine Academy and spoke to some of the, the upcoming cadets or, or students. Um, how, what did you tell them? I mean, what were the, what are the lessons learned over the 10 years since you've been out of there?
1: Uh, so the biggest one I told them was that when you come out of there, like, I don't care how old you are, it doesn't matter what era we're in, that you have to treat yourself the same way. You're coming out of this academy as an officer, and you've got to treat yourself just as the people that came out of here in the 40s were. And then on top of that, like you've got to respect yourself as a person. If you come out of here and you go on the shift just because you're young and you play that, oh, I'm just a kid, that's exactly how you're going to be treated. So you've got to take yourself as serious in life as you want people to treat you. You know, it's like any work environment. If you come in very soft, people are going to bully you over. And you don't have to be a bully, but take yourself seriously. Come out there. The job comes first. You know, it's incredible the places around the world we get to see and the cultures you get to experience. But at the first and foremost, take care of your job and serve as a leader. The people that are below you are your responsibility. And if you're not capable of doing that, You're not capable of being a leader. I mean, you're not a leader in and of itself and you need to accept that and be able to step down because people are looking upon you for information. I mean, they're putting their lives in your hand every night when they go to sleep and you're up there for four hours by yourself. They expect that you're going to do what's right. You're not goofing off, playing on your phone or whatever it is that, you know, becomes commonplace these days.
0: That's good advice. Um, Yeah, that's great advice. And I also know that you have a a fairly young daughter. How old is she?
1: So she's, uh, 15 months now.
0: Oh man. That's all. I got one that's, uh, 22 months. Oh, there you uh, go. Yeah. It's, it's unreal. I mean, it's, it's just the the coolest experience because I had zero, um, zero idea about babies at all. I mean, I never, I'd probably held like two or three babies before (laughs) this little one showed up. So with the, with the daughter, I know it was a huge perspective changer for me and, and still is, you know, every day it is. How has that changed your perspective on, on your work and on these, these long trips? Because um, I'm sure it, it makes it a little, little tougher than it was when you were 23 years old taking off on these trips.
1: Yeah, it definitely does. So before, I did these tramping and long voyages for a long time. And then for two years, I worked on a ship that came to Houston every two weeks. And she was born and I was coming home every two weeks. And every two weeks, my wife would come pick me up at the dock. And she had no idea who I was every time. And she would look at me and then just absolute fear and start crying. And it, <laughs> man, it, I'll be honest. I like to think of, like, I'm a fairly macho guy, you know, in and of itself. Like, I don't cry that often. But, man, it hurt. I was Like, wow. Like, the kid has no idea who I am. Here I am. You know, gallivanting and goofing off thinking I'm having the time of my life at sea. And so that kind of hurt. And then I went, you know, came home, had vacation. She got a little bit older and matured. And I went to sea for that long trip. And I would send my wife a little short, like 15-second videos, which is a game changer. Yes. You know, Harper could watch those. And she knew it. When I got off the ship the next morning, there was none of that. She There was not fear. She knew who I was because she had been seeing stuff every day and that but in and of itself it changed You're like man I'm missing out on a lot when I left she's like standing up took three steps when I got back I remember going in got off the plane came in gonna gone 140 days and Kim goes do not go wake her up and <laughs> she happened to hear us you know I was like okay okay she happened to hear us come in the house and woke up so I went in there and my wife was holding her I was like oh my gosh even though you've seen videos like she's like a a real human. She has all this hair and she's got <laughs> little teeth. That's the exact
0: <laughs> same thing I say. That she's a real
1: human. It's a real
0: human living in this house. That's yeah, the same he, thing I say.
1: Like you said, when other people had kids, you know, I'd be like, Oh, you want to halt them? It's like, no, they're like a sack of potatoes. Like oh, yeah, no what am I supposed to do with this child? <laughs> and when it's yours, it's totally different. Like, oh my gosh, there's so much emotion. So in it, it's definitely changed. Like I, I still love it. This absolutely the same and I have this allure for being at sea but I definitely have reservations like okay I'm not just gonna endlessly go and then if I go endlessly I'm not just gonna hop off and go on some random adventure that I like to do you know like all willy-nilly just take off and go on something uh and it's definitely put me change when I go to these foreign countries where I mean I love every time I get off I'm going to find time to go ashore and run ashore. I don't put myself in what I call sketchy situations now near as much. You know, I used to be like, Oh yeah, I'm going to take this moped from this random person that I don't know. And I'm just going to like follow these other people that I don't know and drive off into the darkness in Africa. and like, (laughs) You know, go to people's homes that I don't know because I inherently believe that people are good and that I trust everybody. But I mean, even just the slightest show in, in certain cultures where they don't have any money, you know, they're not looking to harm you, but man, they, they need something. And if it really gets dramatic or, you know, there's a difference in value of life. And, you know, I've been in some situations where you're like, this is a little sketchy. So now I definitely keep myself out of those situations as much.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I was talking, um, I interviewed a guy named Brady Robinson on this podcast who was a big time, uh, mountain climber, al- alpinist, did a lot of first ascents in Pakistan and now he's got a family and now he's the executive director of a group called the access fund. Um, it's a really good interview and yeah, he, he's a really cool guy, but so he was doing these extremely dangerous climbs and and we were talking a little bit about the same thing about how having kids changes it. And, um, my observation was that uh, before I had kids, I thought that when, when people had kids, they all of a sudden kind of became soft or they had to give up the things they thought were fun but what i've determined is that i don't like yeah like i used to like doing some kind of risky type stuff or or go off on these you know like climbing trips for a month at a time or whatever but now i don't i I literally don't want to it would not be as fun for me to do something crazy or risky and so it's not at all like selling out or or lowering your standards it's just you're your what's important has changed. And I thought that that's been a cool observation from for me as a, as a new parent.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I share that all the same. Um,
0: yeah, you're, re- you're
1: responsible for somebody.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's things that are a lot more important than you, which I think is is a really neat, a neat deal. You know, that kind of instant uh, priority shift that, that happens. Um, man, I could keep just hammering you with these questions for <laughs> hours, but I don't want to take your whole day. Um, one thing. Uh, the way we got connected was through Tyler Sharp, who I also interviewed, who's a super yes. interesting guy. And you, yes. in addition to all of your work on boats and ships and, and your work as a, as a captain, you're a pretty well-known photographer. And so talk to me a little bit about how that happened and, and how did your, your Instagram feed is amazing, both the photos and the writing. How did that come about? Because you've got close to 100,000 followers, I think. Um, how, did, how did that come about?
1: So it started off I hadn't heard of Instagram. Somebody showed it to me. I was like, well, this is kinda cheesy. Like <laughs> I t- I don't get it. I snap a little photo, you know, like and and I found it as a way to challenge myself because on the ship, like carrying my camera around was just cumbersome and I had work to do, you know, it's like you're not a photographer, you're <laughs> you work on a ship, go do your work. <laughs> so I could but I could carry my phone around and it became a challenge, like, okay, every day I'm going to shoot one photo and I'm going to challenge myself because there's no zoom lens. You know, there's not crazy depths of field. And I used it to push my own photography. And I look back, you know, across those couple of years, I'm like, wow, that was absolute garbage that you were shooting. Like, you thought that was good? <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I got into it. And along the way, BuzzFeed, which I didn't even know what it was, honestly, when it happened, I guess I got picked as like, I don't know, like top 10 photographers in, in Texas, you should check out. Yep. I wasn't even in Texas at the time, you know, I was, I was, uh, at anchor off in Fujairah, you know, the United Arab Emirates. And, but I came back and like, you know, I'm checking my phone. We had internet on that ship. I was like, huh, you know, I usually get like 10 likes or something. I was like, what, what is this? Like 99, you know, refresh, like 99 again, like what's happening? And then I got a an email from a friend's like, man, it's incredible. Way to go. You're on BuzzFeed. What is BuzzFeed? <laughs> it's like, it's like it's his website. You know, it's like all these trending topics. I was like, yes, yeah, so what is it? What are trending I don't get what's going on because I'm really bad with, with media in that sense.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So I guess when they put that off, that, that drew some attention for Texas Monthly. And then it was like another year. We were going from Houston to Puerto Rico, and I got to Puerto Rico, got service after five days because we didn't have the internet on the ship. And I turned my phone on, and I was like, what the heck? It's like 10,000 people. <laughs> and I had, like, I had like four at the time. Then I refreshed, and it's like 20-something 1000 like, What's, what is going on? Is this a hoax? <laughs> and it was one of those uh, Instagram-suggested users, which, truthfully, I highly detest i i wish it had not have happened i'm glad that i've got a lot more visibility just because it's allowed me to engage with a lot of cool people that i probably wouldn't run across sure you know previously and that's been the greatest aspect i could care less about the other components but getting to meet the people has just been incredible and then like the, the stuff that they've opened my eyes to and, and places to go so i became an instagram suggested user and it drew all this attention and that's what really blew it up but it was a lot of bots, a lot of junk. Yeah, there's some and, weird and stuff on there, man. Yeah, I, I don't understand it at all. So that that hyped it up, and then people caught wind of it, and they really like the stuff at sea. But then, you know, in hindsight is, eventually I have to get off the ship. Like, I don't live on the ship around the clock. You know, that's where I go to work. Yep. And when I get off, and then I hunt, and, you know, I'm goofing around in the city, or like today, making boudin or whatever I want to do surfing and people were like the people that were following for me going to sea. Were like wait a minute what is this other stuff and then people that hunt that i know would be like when i go back to the ship they're like what's with these ship photos like this isn't hunting stuff <laughs> <laughs> so i don't fit a niche you know, like a lot of people i feel have a, a heavy theme and i don't have that theme which makes it interesting because i've got all these different dynamics of people that like it for different reasons yeah and to me the largest asset has been, it's been about pushing my own photography. It's forced me to continu- continuously search out something and shoot.
0: Well, I think that shows in, in that, yeah, I think it's really cool that you're, you're doing it. You started out doing it for yourself and to, as a challenge and you weren't really paying attention to any of the, you know, social media fame that comes around. Cause I think a lot of people, they, they just want to have a lot of followers for some reason. And you were focused on the craft of photography and it got noticed. And I think that's, um, I think that's a good lesson focus on the craft, not on the, the recognition you hope to get from the craft. Um,
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, in short on that, I think the people that will go chasing recognition, they're not coming up with their own story. It's like, what do you, what is your story you're telling? You just want people to look at it. I mean, you've got to have that comes through. It's like if you talk to somebody that inherently is genuine or somebody that that's after something. If you're after something, eventually it's going to come through, and people get tired of that.
0: And the the captions on your on your photos are really cool. It's kind of a, a you can tell that you read a ton. And I'm guess do you journal? Do you write in a journal?
1: Ooh, yes, but I'm not consistent with it anymore.
0: Well, I can it, somehow you're able to really um, communicate pretty deep ideas in just a few characters. So where did that come from? I mean, where do you, where do you get the ideas for these captions? It's kind of a, kind of a dumb question, I guess, but I, I am curious about it.
1: No, I mean, you said it and some people have asked me along the way. Uh, I didn't realize that in school, I can remember in elementary school, like we had to take those like standardized tests. Yep. I hated those, but there was always a creative writing aspect at the end of it. And I can still remember sitting in this room across from the library. It was next door to the computer lab. And remember, it like, they give you a picture and you, like, they give you a couple, like, maybe a paragraph or something. Like, okay, this is a story you have to tell. Look at the picture. And I had an absolute blast with that. I always loved that. And my teacher was like, oh, yeah, you're right. But, yeah, I went to high school. I didn't pursue it and wandered off and went to college. And I didn't write anything in college at all. And when I started going to see again, uh, I had an app called Memento. Uh-huh. And it's like a journal app. And I found that was my outlet. Early on in my career, I felt strangled on the ship. I was like, it's so small. You know, all my friends are either just finishing college or just got out. They're all goofing off. There's parties all the time. You know, like, and I felt that I was missing so much of it. And I didn't have a good outlet. You know, I didn't want to shoot photography on the ship. I really, my photography had kind of stalled and I didn't enjoy what I was doing I was like this is a chore and so I started journaling and it was a way for me to have an outlet and that tied into establishing that morning routine where I'd have my 10 minutes and you know and then all these thoughts would flow and then I could write in there and from there I just kind of manifested and then I got a I was reading the art of manliness you know about journaling and coming over the blueprint for life so then I got a little moleskin and I would write and I write stories. And Instagram became another outlet for me was in the morning was taking an image, looking at the image and just dumping out what was in my head. Like, like I don't know, at times I feel like, man, there's so much out here I want to share with people that maybe this image can't convey it. I want it to convey as much as I can, but words obviously can do more than that at times. And by mixing them together, it's just my enjoyment. It's my ability to just dump stuff that's in my own head and share it with people.
0: It's it's great. I mean, I I wouldn't tell you if I didn't think so because I I mean it, I've got a pretty um, stringent BS meter when it comes to some of that stuff. But I'm telling <laughs> you, man, the, the the photos are awesome. I mean, I'm not telling you that you don't know, but the photos are awesome and the the captions are are really really awesome. I think it you should think about trying to put those into a book or something at some point because it's it's really wise stuff. And like I said, I got high standards for that. Um,
1: I appreciate that.
0: Yeah. And so speaking of, of, you were talking about you're on the boat half the year and then you're, you're on the, the land half the year and people get kind of confused. Um, I do want to loop this in to the American West in some way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so when you are recently, uh, you, you were off, you've been off the boat and I know you've gone on some pretty cool trips through the American West. Um, I know you were in Jackson hole and then you did a big RV trip with your family, which I I saw that on Instagram and I thought it it looked like an awesome trip. And so could you kind of just talk about the the itinerary of that trip, what you did, what you saw, kind of your, your thoughts on it. Um, anything interesting that happened?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I, I was on the ship in short and, uh, the second mate, the third mate, were talking one day and they're like, Oh yeah, we're going to go snowboard in Jackson hole. That sounds awesome. You know, so I sent my wife an email like, I've gotten smart. You know, I'm like, I'm going to ask permission first instead <laughs> of just telling you guys. <laughs> you know, Good move. Yeah. And, and strangely enough, she goes, yeah, of course. I think you should do it. You know, it's been a long trip on the ship. So I book. We fly out to Jackson. I've always wanted to go there. Heard about it. Seen pictures. So I went and we snowboarded for a week, which is a whole story in and of itself. And then I got on the plane and I was just I felt so disheartened that I was having to leave this is so beautiful i can't believe that kim didn't get to come and i really want to drive around and see this so your wife's name's kim yes that's my wife's name oh cool small world (laughs) yeah right (laughs) (laughs) and i was flying back in and landed and i started talking to her i was like man what are we going to do next because i've got three to four months of vacation at a time and so i'm always looking for something to go do and so this idea came like, we should go. We were going to go on a road trip on the West Coast last year, but it didn't work out. So I said, we should go on a road trip. We should go back to Jackson and go into Montana. She's like, what? Um, I mean, I guess. Yeah. So, like, you know, I did the research. Boom. And then, of course, because Tyler, man, he just kind of lives up there, and he's got all this insight. So I pinged Tyler, which then, like, I was able to ping Chris Douglas and, and all these people. And I just the allure of it was just this like whole vast part of the country that I hadn't spent that much time. You know, I've been in Salt Lake city. I've been over to San Francisco and, and gone to Portland, but city. So it was, uh, it was like, it was a Wednesday, came up with the idea. We scratched, we were supposed to fly out Thursday to go to Nashville. We scratched that trip, canceled the plane flight, called cruise America, rented an RV and, 17 days later, we returned to Houston, but
0: that's awesome.
1: Yeah. And and in the process, I went up to Kansas, got in a late snow goose season hunt, which was like way to kick it off. Yep. We went, we went to Estes park, did Rocky mountain national park. Then we were going up to go to Jackson and we were going to go up into Montana and see Chris Douglas and all this and billings and all this information. Tyler had fed me and going between Estes park up to I-80 we hit this black ice, and there was like 50-mile-an-hour gust coming across. And I almost lost the RV three times. I mean, I literally, 30-degree angle, slid across the road, under the shoulder, sheared back across. I've never been more scared in my life. And I got to I-80, and I was like, that's it. i got to rent a hotel. I can't drive anymore today. I'm so, I couldn't believe how freaked out I was. Because, again, it goes back to the kid. You know, oh, yeah, yeah. It's not just my, you know, my buddies. I've been like, man you've been giving crazy. high fives yep. like record it next yeah, time exactly. it happens put it on video I want to see.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no i know man i yeah. know the feeling
1: uh yeah so uh, i ditched that and so i called chris like man i was like i'm not coming to montana this is i'm looking at the weather i'm just gonna keep going through ice and snow and no nah, this is a terrible idea so i called some college roommates and they happen to live in salt lake city so we went over to salt lake city hung out there did like antelope island um trekked around salt lake city a bit and then literally we were just we had a map and we just kept like, grabbing ideas we went down through moab stopped in Canyonlands and arches and oh i could just stay there for probably a couple months it's amazing and there. goodness mind-blowing i mean i'll finish the the itinerary because i could talk on that one and then we left there uh Went to Santa Fe because my wife really wanted to see the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum. And yep. it was like, okay, we've, we've been on the road. We've been staying in this RV. Let's get a nice hotel room, take a shower, be clean, have a nice meal. So recouped, dropped down to White Sands, then went on to Carlsbad, and then the final massive stretch across Texas and, and made it back.
0: That's a, that's a great trip. And you saw, I mean, you you saw such a variety there and that talking about interstate 80, I remember when I moved, I moved from North Carolina to Jackson hole. And I remember the first time I drove down that road, it was in the winter and there had been a storm that had come through and I saw about three or four 18 wheelers blown over on their side. And I'd never seen that before. And that, that was a real um, stern reminder of how, how rough the weather can be out here. Um, I mean, it's just, it's crazy with the ice and everything. Um, so when you, you know, as a guy who spent, has spent probably the last, I don't know, five, if you add it all up, maybe five years of your life on the water of the last 10, um, sure. if You think half of your time on the water. Um, what was your, is there one, is there a, a like a takeaway or was there something that struck you about the West when you came out here that was surprising to you like the, kind of the the wide open spaces i mean i guess you're used to that on the ocean but what what struck you as completely unique when you like say when you flew into teton or into um jackson hole
1: flying in and driving were kind of two different because but flying in is both of them the vastness you're just like it's so incredible i mean just drive for hours and hours and you don't see A silly nail salon and a million and one gas stations on all four corners you know it's like this is so fast people as compact as we can be in these major cities there's nobody out here like this is these are the elements this is real you know and there's people that are, are living out here and battling this and been battling it for a long time and so to see that and to get to drive across it it's just a completely different appreciation on top of when you stretch across it, like you said, going through Jackson into Wyoming, um, down through Wyoming back to Utah and all that, the different landscapes and the structures, you know, geological structures, just like absolutely blows my mind. And, and even to this moment, and it will for the rest of my life. Just like how in the world that was shaped, like how long it took. Yep. To do this, and I'm kind of a dreamer in and of itself. And we were in Canyonlands, and we climbed up on this this point. We were looking out, and I was thinking, Can you imagine people? They come riding out there on a horse, and they look, and they're like. How in the world are we getting across that?
0: I think about that all yeah. the time. I think about that exact thing. I, I was saying that to somebody the other day um, <laughs> when we were out on a property and there was this big canyon. And I was thinking, think about when the, those people came out here <laughs> in a wagon. I mean, it's just, it's, it's <laughs> amazing. I, I, I don't think you ever lose that because I've been out here for a long time and I still okay. think that.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's cool. And even, and even the mountains. I mean, you, you look at a mountain. I mean, goodness you like driving on these roads now. You're like, oh, man, imagine how much rock they had to blow out with technology, you know, and having topographic maps to figure this out. You're like, But somebody came through here. It's like hell on wheels, you know, and they blew out mountainsides and caves and made roads and made paths through this stuff. I mean, very permanent tools at the time. Oh, yeah. Absolutely wild.
0: Do you still get that kind of awe-inspired feeling when you're out – on the ocean do you you still get that or are you so used to it now it's not um not a normal thing for you to to get
1: oh no it it still gets me every day okay i mean i figured it's part of my you know yeah part of my routine of opening up the blinds and and sitting in that chair on the starboard side i'll just look out across the ocean it's like goodness it's so big and today it's calm and peaceful and then you know like going through the med we're dealing with four and a half meters swells and winds you know clipping 60 miles an hour like and it is ruthless and it doesn't care whether i'm in a little wooden yacht or you know or i'm on this massive steel ship with digital charts and everything else like the ocean could care less it will destroy me all the same yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Humbling, man. Humbling. That's 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 yeah. cool. Um so I've got a few kind of quick questions that I've I've gone through with most of the people I've interviewed, and so I want to run those by and then I'll let you get back to your, your fun day. Um yeah, she, if uh if you could recommend are there any books that are your favorites or that you've recommended to others or given as gifts to others? Any any books that stick out in your mind?
1: Um yeah, so I've got two that I really like. Uh, the Drifters by James Michener and it, I want to say it's set in the 60s yeah because it's during the Vietnam War it's about these different kids from different walks of life and they all end up meeting up you know they're over in Spain and then they go into Morocco and it's just kind of like I feel that it grips at me as when I was younger not experiencing much and then getting out and seeing the world and then going into almost a reckless state and finding this balance in between it and that's just how it is. They show these kids and they go through all different walks of life and all different aspects and they come together and get into some crazy situations. And then at the end, you know, they all kind of change perspectives by absorbing what they've seen along the way. And that's the biggest takeaway like, man, you need to get out of your box and you need to experience stuff and not just go see it and check it off the box. Like, go there and absorb and see what's good, see what's bad, see what. Maybe you could change your mind on something you thought was good, maybe not so good, or maybe something you thought was bad. not so bad and just put things life into perspective and cool. take that away.
0: I know um, that I'll, 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 and I'll put notes to all, I'll put links to all these in the notes on the webpage.
1: Oh, okay, cool. Um, I get, goes the Shackleton book endurance. You've read it. It's just, it's an incredible story. of just, not adventure. I mean, when he, he put an article in the newspaper and you know, it was like it's something along the lines of like only those that are crazy want to go see something possible death please yeah. do apply
0: <laughs> yeah
1: and so the adventure of that that they had no idea what they were really dealing with and, and at the, the leadership that comes out of it and the camaraderie that they built to do it so it it's not just about going to see you know it's like man these guys went somewhere so far off. It goes back to like we said, people trying to cross canyons and go across mountains, going across deserts. People have done some absolute incredible stuff. And so,
0: yeah, that's a good one. I, I highly recommend that. Whether you have any interest in adventure or you know whatever, whatever, you can apply some lesson from that book to your life, no matter what. Uh, it's one of the best I've read in a long. I was embarrassed that it took me as long as it did to read it. I just read it probably. I think I read it last year. Um, oh yeah. Oh, cool. It's it's a good one. Any favorite documentaries or films?
1: Ooh. 180 South.
0: Oh yeah. That's one of my that's one of my favorites of all time. That's a great one.
1: It's just yeah, so good. And I mean all of them. Yvonne Kennard and, and Tompkins, he was still around. Just the insight those guys have from so much they've done and having a lasting impact. And so it's like I saw it at a time in my life that was a little tough. It was like going through all of that, like. This is just where I really want to be. And seeing that, it was just, it was pivotal in my life. Yeah, that's a good
0: one. Surfing, mountain climbing, boats, it's got it all.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, true. And, and when it comes to goofing off, Wes Anderson movies. Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: I think I, there are a lot of references to that on your Instagram, correct?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I constantly drop something in.
0: <laughs> um, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received?
1: Oh, uh Okay. I remember I was working with a captain that was the worst person I've ever dealt with in my life. I mean, just an absolute tyrant. And I called my dad. I was in uh, Dubai. We got off the ship. And he was, and I told him how bad it was. Like, man, yeah, I think I'm going to quit. He goes, he thought about it. He told me, you're going to work with people in life that you don't like. And you're going to do a lot of stuff in life. People are going to tell you that you don't really care for. It. And sometimes you've just got to suck it up and do it. Because you know what? Other people have done it before you and other people are going to do it after you. And it, you're going to fold, it's just going to show you what your character is. That's you good know? advice. And then, yeah, and then another guy from that along those lines was also knowing where you draw your own line. I mean, it comes to times, you know, you've got to make a decision that, hey, I don't agree with that at all. And you've got to be able to stand your ground and leave and know that, hey, I've got the choice to get out of here. And you know, so if you don't believe in it truly wholeheartedly, Pack your
0: stuff and go. Yeah, I think both of those are great. Um, uh, this last question, is, or next to last question, I, I'm going to modify it a bit. I normally ask people what do they think is the biggest challenge and or opportunity facing the American West. But instead of that, I'm going to say challenge and or opportunity facing the oceans today. I mean, I guess, you know, and that could be from an environmental standpoint, conservation, you know, whatever you you have seen out there that that you see as a challenge, and you know, in in every challenge there are opportunities.
1: Yeah, sure. It, Single handedly, it's the plastic. It's our consumption of this disposable item. You know, and I'm not big a, a crazy nut as some people would say, getting on people. But I mean, being in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, mm-hmm. a couple thousand miles away from land, and being able to see just loads of it. You can look down in the depths and you just see it. It's like the size of a quarter and it's as deep as you can see and it's every like maybe three inches. It's just layers and layers of plastic for miles and miles. And you're like golly, and countries all over the world showing up in the ports and just the amount of garbage that is washing out. I'm like, hey listen, it, this isn't big business you know. Those those people that you want to say are terrible in their office are not coming down to the coast and dropping bags of it. Like, most of this stuff is coming out of our ditches and it's, it's local populations, you know, dumping it. And that's where it's going because they don't see where it ends up. So it's like out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. the um
0: That's you and know, that stuff doesn't go away. It's never going to go away. I mean, it'll be here yeah. long after us humans are gone.
1: Yeah. And so I would tell people, you know, consider how much you consume. I mean, if you can cut down on something, whether it's like, buying a ton of plastic bottles or hey if you can utilize a container again and again again it may be out of sight out of mind because you're not dealing with it but why don't you start piling that up in your backyard and see how fast you feel you want it in your backyard of course it's not but it's so easy when it's gone and like you said it doesn't go away it's just floating out there and i get into it everywhere and this isn't just like wow i saw a plastic bottle i mean you're talking about cruising 350 miles in a day and seeing it continuously
0: wow um so almost last question if you can make a request of the lift listeners and these are people who just uh, they appreciate the the american west they appreciate adventure they appreciate people who kind of live their life uh, you know according to their own standards and are doing cool stuff um if you can make a request of those people or offer some sort of advice to them what would
1: it be Yeah, go back to just consider the footprint you leave. You know, people love climbing the mountains. Well, you know, don't cut them out an inch at a time. You know, you love the American West. Well, don't flatten it and make a parking lot if you don't have to. uh, Human expansion, we're going to move. We're going to have to take up more property. But if we really don't need it, try to do our own part to consume just what you need. You know, enjoy life. Don't cheat yourself, but consider if you can minimize your impact that little bit that we all do just adds up in the long run.
0: I agree completely. So how can people connect with you online website, Instagram, all that kind of stuff?
1: Yeah. The, uh, the, uh, Instagram, uh, abstract conformity, the uh, website, www.abstractconformity.com. That's more just a portfolio of work. Uh, and then I always tell people like, man, shoot me an email. I'm always happy to talk to people, whether it's, hunting or you know shooting photos or whatever it may be music hey i'm always open to talk to people i love meeting new people never know where our friendship will go or where it comes from
0: well man i appreciate you taking the time to chat with me and next time you're in colorado or next time i'm down there i'll uh, i'll look you up um and you definitely do the same if you come up here we need to we need to get together
1: yeah most certainly hey i'd love it